back to the Cattle Menu Podcast. I'm Caroline Rose, the founder and CEO of K-Rose Company and Cattle Menu. Thank you for joining us on this episode. I'm excited to bring you these conversations each week filled with relatable advice and techniques you can take back to your operation. It's my mission to make sure that we can ranch in the next generation. Make sure and subscribe where you're listening so you never miss a new episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Cat Menu Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Rose, and I am thrilled to be joined by Wendy today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for asking me. Why don't you start and just give us a little bit of background and kind of some of the things you're up to these days? Uh, so the background is born and raised in Wyoming on a ranch. Spent most of my time, my early years before school was with my dad because my mom worked in town trying to pay bills. So I did everything my dad did, which was feed cows and doctor cows and all those things. I watched him so closely that when he was chewing tobacco, I would find an empty can, fill it with coffee grounds so that every time he took a chew, I could take a chew. And every time he would spit, I could spit. And definitely by noon, I was pretty high on coffee. So <laughs> he had his hands full. We grew up with horses, dogs, cattle, um, sheep for a little while. But um, I think that is the foundation for getting me to where I am today, which is I live on a ranch in Claremont. My husband's family has a sheep and cattle operation here. And then we added dogs to the situation about 11 or 12 years ago. And that has definitely made ranching with livestock so much easier because of the dogs, which then the dogs uh, developed into a business for me as well, breeding, selling, training, trialing, all the good things that come with dogs. I love that story about your dad. I'm also someone who's a huge fan of my dad. And you, I remember kind of from the very first moments I started shipping cattle with him, he would say, stay right in my pocket meaning he wanted me to just mimic every move right in his back pocket so that, you know, I wasn't affecting flow. But I love that story about the coffee. And you mentioned dogs, which is something that we are so passionate about at our operation. But I also kind of think good dogs are almost like a secret menu in the ag industry that not a lot of people know about. And so Talk a little bit about how adding dogs to your guys' operation kind of changed the game. So I'm going to go back in history a little bit. When I was a kid, my dad had Australian Shepherds. And that line of Australian Shepherds um, was actually pretty impressive, especially now that I have Border Collies and I look back at the things he got done with an Australian Shepherd, I feel like his Australian Shepherds were just a little bit different than the ones I'm around today. But anyways, that that's where the passion for dogs started. And like I say, he got a lot done with an Australian Shepherd. He was very good at training dogs, horses, people, kids. Um, and so I, I knew I loved dogs. And when I got on my own, I just continued on with Australian Shepherds because that's what I knew. But later in life, after I was married, my neighbor down the road had Border Collies, and we helped them move cows one day, and we had a 
we had a wreck. The calves were small and the calves were going back to where they last seen their mother. We were at the gate and these calves were growing, going back. And she jumped her dog out and sent it around these calves. The dog went out of sight over a hill and came back with, I don't know, 15 head of calves or something. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's something I'm going to have to have. So that is when I decided I needed a border collie. So at the time I had an Australian shepherd and I called my friend and I said, I would like to gift you my dog. And she's like, oh, I'll take your dog. So I knew that the decision was made and I had to let go of the Aussie to get the border collie. Best decision I've ever made because like I said, we also run sheep here. So I do not understand how people move and manage sheep without a border collie. I know it's done. And actually we did it here for a short time. And I think that's exactly where cuss words come from because the the dog handles livestock in such a phenomenal way that people cannot. So again, I just don't know how we ever got by moving sheep without a dog. Also with cattle as well. And you could get by without a dog on cattle, but once you have a dog that operates both sheep and cattle, you you just can't leave home without them. It would be like going to town without your checkbook. So yeah, the border collie has really opened my eyes to the possibility of the dog's intelligence and willingness to help you get the job done. And I'm nothing against an Australian shepherd, but I feel like I learned a lot from them and, and then I moved up to the border collie and that's where I'll stay. I think the saying goes, what one good dog is worth three people. Mm-hmm. Is that about what they figure? And definitely that's the case for us and our operation. So talk a little bit about, I think it can be a little overwhelming, right? You see kind of dogs listed on social media or you see someone selling dogs at the sale barn. Talk a little bit, one, about picking out a good working dog and kind of some expectations on what effort and what it takes to get a dog that's really a true partner. Okay, for me, I'm looking for the Border Collie that is a thinker. So a lot of times your dog could either be reacting to a situation or responding to it. I want my dog to respond to it and be thinking, not re- not reacting. I want him to think his way through. I want him to be um, considerate to my livestock. I want the dog to offer the livestock to move off his pressure, you know, before he ever bites one. But I also want him to have the power to back it up. If the if the stock doesn't move, then I want the dog to advance and, and make that happen. Everything in my training program falls under two headings. Heading number one is relationship. Heading number two is communication. So I feel like if you have a relationship with your dog and clear communication, all training will fall under those two categories. For instance, um, if your dog is mishandling the livestock, in my opinion, that is because the pressure between you and the dog is, is not correct. Therefore, the pressure between the dog and the livestock is not correct. So when people come for lessons and their dog is mishandling the livestock, I say we need to back up and figure out your communication and your relationship with the dog. And when we clear that up, 
the dog then treats his livestock with respect. It's it's almost like magic. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but kind of got on a sidetrack there. But for me, I'm looking for that dog. Team player has a good brain. I don't really care what they look like. I don't care if they have long hair, short hair. Short hair is easier to manage, but what I really want the dog is to read the situation and be helpful. At a dog trial, or a, yeah, dog trial one time in Nebraska, we had some really rough cattle. And my dog, Frank, who I love so much, that was the dog I was running. And at one point, the three calves split. Two went one way and one was coming for me because they were, they'd had enough. So Frank was handling the two and he stopped and he saw that calf coming for me and he dropped the two and got between me and the calf and stopped it and turned it around. And that told me from that day forward, I really need relationship and communication because that sort of thing, I didn't even know it was coming, but he did. So he read it, he responded to it, saved my bacon. And that tells me that we're on the right track as far as a good relationship because he loved me enough to come save my life. And I just think that's something you, you're not breeding in the dog. You're developing in your relationship and your communication. So from that day on, I told myself that's exactly what I'm aiming for is those two things. And so far, every dog that I've trained, I think we're getting there. I think obviously there's always room for improvement, but I feel like I am there with each dog. And I think that trust in that relationship, I think there's a surface level trust that comes pretty quickly with some dogs. Mm -hmm. What I've noticed with my dad and his dogs is it's a daily thing. Like he is taking that dog along with him as often as humanly possible to the cattle sales to, you know, he always gets that dog out because that time together is mm-hmm. really what the repetitive nature and I know sometimes people can get frustrated with working dogs you know if they're locked up and then you turn them out and they don't listen and I think it takes a long time to train a really good dog and I just sometimes think it's hard to grasp how much effort that is yeah there's a commitment for sure but I will say this it's not about it's about quality not quantity meaning no matter how much time you spend with the dog, it still has to be quality. It has to be a open communication where you are also listening to the dog. I'm, I don't dominate my dogs. I don't, I don't make sure they are super obedient and they do everything I say. I want them to have some say in what we're doing because that's what develops the relationship and the communication. So if my dog says, I don't want to do that, I say, okay, let me think about that. Why don't you want to do that? And we work our way through it. And then pretty soon the dog is doing it. But I don't think it's fair to just dominate the dog. So, yeah, I agree with you. As much time as you can spend with a dog is great. But in my opinion, it also still has to be very quality time. Like the dog has to feel like he's on the team, part of the team. He's not the leader of the team, but he is. My dogs have some say in what I do. And a lot of times they're right. And so I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I listen to you? You know more about livestock than I will ever know. We're excited to announce our first ever She's a Hand Ranch Camp Horseback Edition. 
on June 14th through 16th, we'll be hosting 14 women to cultivate their cattle handling skills from horseback. We'll spend one day working in the arena, one day in the backgrounding lot, and one day gathering cattle in summer country. Attendees will provide their own horses and tack. We're accepting applications now through the form linked below. Once your application has been reviewed and accepted, you will have 48 hours to secure your spot. How long do you think it takes you to get a dog, you know, from pup to really be 100% in the game? Uh, that is case specific for each dog. My first dog, Tony, was nine months old and I took him to a trial. Of course, it was the novice and it was, you know, fairly easy. But at nine months old, that dog would do anything for me. He was all in and he was very responsive and obedient. And so we started winning trials at nine months old. Again, these are just an arena trial, like not a big deal. But at nine months old, I was getting that done. Now I have other dogs that at two years old, I'm just thinking they might be ready to trial. So I feel like the dog is in charge of the speed of the completion. I will always push a dog, but I won't push him past his limits. So when he tells me I can't take any more today, we stop, we pick up where we left off tomorrow, and we try to go a little further. But again, I don't want to push him past his comfort zone every day and make him, like you were talking about, trust. I don't want him to distrust my training process. Do you recommend that you buy a dog as a pup, or can you buy a fully trained dog and bring them onto your team? Well, my experience with dogs is whoever takes them to work is who they fall in love with. So whether it's a puppy, a started dog, or a finished dog, in my opinion, does not matter. And I say that because people will bring me their dog that's, let's say, two years old, and they want it trained. And they've been with this dog every day since it was two. They definitely have a bond. They drop it off with me. And in 30 days, they come see the dog and see where the dog is at. And the dog is like, hi, good to see you. But I'm with Wendy. She's the one that takes me to work every day. So the bond is definitely work-related. In fact, when people bring a dog to me, I don't spend a lot of time petting it and loving it and trying to make it my friend. I take it to work day one so that they know what they're here for and they feel good about it. Because the bonding process with work for the Border Collie is the key if if I wait, you know, a week to take it to work, I've missed out on a week of really good bonding by not adding livestock to the picture. That's interesting. I never thought about it that way because you see, you know, on social media and we obviously have people call and it just seems so much personal preference to what people yeah. are comfortable with. You know, yeah. they either have to have a pup or they feel like they have to have a kind of a finished dog. We get very few requests for started dogs. So that's just interesting because I know I'm sure some of our listeners, you know, are wondering if they're going to add a dog, how they do that. Yeah, I think to me, the deciding factor is how capable of you are you. If you're super capable, get a puppy and yeah, go forward. If you're not sure, if you're just getting started, I suggest the finished dog and then get lessons with the dog as well. And if you're kind of in the middle of the road, then a started dog would work for you. I think it really matters 
where the person is at with their training and understanding of dogs and how they work. So that, because again, like I say, if you take the dog to work, he will fall in love with you. So the bonding is crucial with, I mean, falls together with the work. But if you don't know anything about training a dog and you get a puppy, chances are they are going to outsmart you pretty bad and they are going to be training you. And I say that because they've, they've done it to me. The Border Collie's intelligence level is if you don't step up and be the leader, the dog will absolutely do it for you. <laughs> and not that they're doing it out of, they're not being bad. They're just, they know that somebody has to be in charge. So they step up. What are some of the common mistakes that you see when people get a dog and they're first starting to try either try and get it to work or it's already you know started or something to that nature but what are some of those common mistakes that you see people making um so that definitely goes back to the relationship and communication if your communication isn't clear there's no way to forge your relationship and there's no way to get the job done so you really need to make sure your communication is where the dog left off so let's say you got a started dog you need to pick up where they left off. Now, after the fact, after you get to that spot, you could tweak the training and whatever because the dog is still flexible. But when you first get started, you need to you need to be at the dog's level of understanding and then go forward. If you are behind the dog's level, they will take a little bit of advantage of you. And again, that's not because they're bad dogs. It's because they're smart. And when you were talking about trust, so let's say I took my started dog down to the arena and I was going to work him. And I kept putting him in a position to where he was losing his stock. He would then say, yeah, this lady does not know anything about livestock. I cannot listen to her. I cannot trust her. So for a while, you need to get on the same page as the dog. And then after you've developed that part of your relationship, then you can ask the dog to do things that doesn't make sense to the dog and he will still do it. And in my opinion, that's what trialing is. When I go down there, I send the dog down and he picks up the stock and he's bringing him to me. And I say, okay, now I want you to flank over to the right and drive him to the left. The dog says, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the fact is we've got to the point where he trusts what I'm asking him to do and he will do it for me. So if the dog is not willing to do things with their livestock that you want, you might rewind and say, I think it's because I've put him in positions that he couldn't trust me. Yeah, you mentioned trialing there. And I think that is probably one of the misconceptions that I hear about trialing is, well, it's not practical. We don't do this on the ranch. And it has played such a fundamental role for our ranch dogs to go to a couple trials because of one, I think confidence and building trust and just getting out of, you know, their environment a little bit. But why are you such a believer in trialing and what benefits have you seen for, you know, people who are not maybe trying to go to the finals, but just want to have a really good ranch dog? That is a great question because trialing is the place that you go to tell you what your homework is. Cause you're at home, things are going pretty well. You're like, you know what? Maybe I am a good dog trainer. Look at my dog. Look at all these great things my dog's doing. <laughs> then you go to a trial 
and the trial will tell you where you are missing pieces of the puzzle in your training. Number one, that's exactly, I mean, I go to compete. I've always been competitive. I was a team roper and I've always done things in a competitive way. So that's one reason to go. But really, when you take a young dog to a trial, it tells you all the holes in your training and then you can go home and fix those. Then you go to the next trial and you're like, oh, a new spot to work on. So trialing for me is a really great way to know where your holes are at in your training and be able to fix them. The other thing about trialing is it puts you in a position to meet lots of people, enlarge your dog circle, you know, see new bloodlines that maybe you want to add to your program. That's where I meet a lot of people that come for lessons. There's so many great aspects to the trialing, but I would say, number one, it's the thing that tells me where my training holes are at. And it's a social event, which I think, you know, is is maybe not the first thing I was going to say minuscule compared to the other benefits. But I do think there is a lot of benefit to having someone watch you work your dog who wants to make you better. And that's what I, we hosted some trials at our place this summer. And that's what I really noticed is, you know, when people are after their run, they're coming off and, and they're asking like, what did you see? What can I do better? This felt this way. What did it look like? And I think some of that community, especially when you're trying to raise really good dogs that are helpful in your operation is, I mean, I don't think you can put a price tag on that. No. And I'll tell you, I do a lot of private lessons. People just bring their dog here to my uh, place, our place. And the, the thing that is always happening for me is while I'm watching the dog and the person and the livestock, I get a clear read on what's going on and then I'm able to help them, which in turn always helps me. I know I'm giving lessons, but actually I'm getting a lot of learning from it myself. So it's like a a win-win. Not only am I able to help them, but it definitely helps me with my dogs as well because you're outside looking in. And like you said, the feel is sometimes different than the look. Back to team roping days, I would be like, man, I was so aggressive roping that steer. And my husband would say, oh no, let me show you the video. (laughs) And I would watch the video and I'm like, oh God, yeah. I'm not as aggressive as I thought. Like I could have roped that thing, you know, five strides sooner. So the feel and the look are always different. So I highly suggest that you work dogs with other people and you guys brainstorm and, and get another set of eyes on what's going on with you and your dog. I think that's also how I was able to listen to the dog. Like when people come here, I really listen to the dog and I say, you know, this is what your dog's telling me. He's telling me, a, B, and C. And that's just something the person had never thought of um, because they were in the middle of it. They weren't outside looking in. And so that has helped me with my dogs as well because I need to step back and kind of look at that from a different perspective. Yeah, something that came to mind while you're talking about that is if you want to teach, right? If you want to train, then you have to be teachable or trainable. Mm -hmm. And it feels, you know, like a double-edged sword in a positive way. So the more that you want to teach, the more you have to be open to having someone help and teach you back. Correct. And I've learned the most from dogs. Well, I mean, I've learned from horses and animals in general, but 
dogs are specific teachers. I feel like every dog that's in my kennel came here to teach me something. And it's usually something about myself, like, oh, yep, I need more patience or I need to present this lesson to this dog a different way. His learning curve is different. I need to, it It has challenged me in, in a million ways when dogs come here and I'm training them. It's challenged me to better myself in the areas that need to be bettered. And if you are open to the idea, the dog will absolutely tell you what you need to work on. You just need to be open to it and listen to the dog. Okay, let's talk a little bit about dogs have gotten a little bit of pressure from the GAP program, especially in the cattle industry. And so one of the levels of GAP, one of the requirements is that you can't use a working dog. And obviously this to us is a red flag. We could not run our operation, especially our yearling operation, without our dogs. And how do we, as people in agriculture, how do we make sure that we are shining the best light and showing the positive aspects of our working dogs? Because we know, right, that people are watching social media. It's really easy for videos to go viral or get in the wrong hands. Like, what are some things that you're cautious of or you talk to other people about at trials? Like, just making sure that we're sharing the best light and really talking about how valuable these dogs are to our operation. Well, I think you've said something that's very important. Everybody wants to put a video of their dog working on Facebook or wherever. And a lot of times that is very productive. It's very positive and it's and it's putting the dog in a great spot but we have to have stockmanship when we do it and I have seen videos where there is no stockmanship um, and when those are out there I mean there's nothing we can do about that it's America so we are free to put out there what we want but the wrong person or the right person I guess I could say looking at that video with no stockmanship would say yeah I don't need a dog on my place there's no way and that's, that's too bad because they're missing out on a really good helpmate if they could see the dogs working properly. So, for instance, um, a friend of mine had some weaned heifer calves, pretty good sized, and they were flighty. And she was going to keep them for replacements. So she had them in a fairly small corral. And the corral was just down below a little bit of a heel. And anytime they saw any people pressure, they were just going to take that fence down. So I said, let's just stand up here on this hill and I'll send my dog down. And initially I just had the dog moving around the stock outside of the fence. So the cattle were in the, in the corral, he was outside the corral. And I just moved him back and forth around those cattle. And you could see them very curious about the dog, but they really were okay with it. Like if we walked down there, they were going to hit the fence but they were okay with this dog. The dog was giving off just the right amount of pressure and power and, and uh, space to let those cattle know they were okay. And after a few minutes of that, I went ahead and put him inside with the cattle. And I'm just standing up on the hill using a whistle or voice commands to tell the dog. And we would, I would just have the dog put pressure on the cows. And when they moved off the pressure, I would lay him down. And to me, that was the stockmanship that was necessary for the cattle to understand how the dog works, 
and for the dog to maneuver these cattle. We could have never done that. If we'd have walked down there with a hot shot, a sorting stick or a flag or anything, we'd be building fence. But this dog was communicating in such a way that the cattle were okay with it. And within probably 45 minutes, I could put those heifers anywhere I wanted with that dog. And it was so quiet, no stress whatsoever. So if videos like that were (laughs) out there in full force, I think people would say, yes, I definitely need a dog. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know a solution to what you're saying. I understand the problem, but I don't know the solution to get to get the people to see the right dog under the right light in the right circumstances, because so many people are doing things with dogs that you would never, I wouldn't want done with my livestock. And yeah, I guess I don't have an answer how to fix that. Yeah, it's certainly something to think about because it, you know, it does make me a little nervous just knowing the labor, you know, the labor issues and really just how we utilize our dogs. But I do think you're right. I think oftentimes on social media, we share more than we should all across the board, right? (laughs) um, It's very hard to share a video of a working dog and be able to explain it well while you're working the dog. And I think sometimes that's the piece that's missing is the explanation. Because while you're, you know, whistling or giving commands to your dog, it's hard to talk into the video and explain what you're doing and what your dog's doing. Mm -hmm. And we just have to remember that not everyone has dogs at home and not everyone grew up around dogs and they have no idea what they're doing and or what they're watching. And I just think it's a thing we should keep in the back of our mind. Absolutely. I'm helping a guy find a dog right now who has never had a dog. And he called me and said, what am I looking for? So I told him what I thought he needed. And I said, I'm going to go right to my arena right now. I'm going to get out a young dog and a finished dog. And I'm going to show you the difference. And I'm going to talk you through it as it's happening. And I sent him two videos and he said, I need a finished dog. And I said, I think you're right. But I wanted him to have some say in the shopping process, right? It's no fun to have someone shove a dog down your throat. So I just wanted him to see the difference in the dogs, the young dog and the old dog. And I think we've successfully successfully found him a dog. But yeah, like you're saying, you, you need to be able to put the right videos out there so that people understand what it is that they're looking for and then a, a find a place to, to find that type of dog, which is hard. I have phone calls probably weekly looking for a dog and I have no inventory because they just don't last. People, people buy them. Yeah, good dogs are hard to come by. And I think you said, what are you looking for when you pick dogs out? And I remember when my dad first got started training and and raising some pups, he would always let us kids pick out the dogs. And so now when people will ask him, like, you know, if you're looking at my dad's dog's pedigrees, they'll say, how'd you pick out this dog? And my dad will say, well, it was the fattest of the litter. And the kids picked it out and it just happened to work for us. Yeah. And they're like, you didn't use any of the science? My dad's like, no. The kids were like, this one can't be sold, dad. <laughs> and then he ju- he was like, I just had to use it because I couldn't keep more than we you know needed or at the time. And And so it's interesting hearing him now talk about what he looks for in a young dog versus 
when we were in high school and middle school and he was raising pups and we were really helping, we just picked out the cutest or the fattest or the one that looked kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they were great dogs. I mean, that have had lots of pups around our place, but it, I just heard you mention that. And it just brought me back to a couple of the ones that he's had. One of his retired dogs that just passed away just was the fattest dog ever. I mean, we have these pictures of him as a puppy and I know that's why we picked him. And so some of it's science um, and some of it is just knowing how to handle them once you get them. Yep. I have a system that has worked for me on picking dogs. And the system is this. Let's say I have a litter of puppies. There's two ways to do it. We'll do it with my litter first. So I have a litter of puppies and you know, I'm with them every day. I see them every day and I don't start looking or liking any of them. I'm in neutral and I let people come pick their puppies and I get what's left because I feel like the dog I'm supposed to have will be the dog that stays here. And that's the dog that's going to teach me something I needed to know. There's, I always feel like there's something bigger than myself that's orchestrating this. So I don't just, you know, when they're born, I'm like, okay, that's my puppy. I don't necessarily do that. And if somebody else says, hey, I got these puppies. Do you want to come look? I'll be like, you know what? You can just put me at the bottom of the list or whatever you want to do. I I know that the right dog will find its way to me. And that has worked like phenomenally well. So I don't pick puppies like everybody else does. I let the puppy come to me that is going to teach me something. And so far, that's worked every single time. Now, I don't always keep those dogs. Some of the dogs come, they get trained, and they get sold. But I also think that was the path for the dog as well. I'm not upset that, oh, this isn't the dog that I really wanted. I feel like the dog was supposed to come here, get trained, and find his forever home. So I'm just really open to how these dogs come to me and if they stay or if they go. Yeah, that's a great way. My dad oftentimes, depends on what kind of dog he's looking for, but... He has mentioned that the two dogs he really notices the first one to come to you when you kind of bend down mm-hmm. and the last one, the one that never comes to you. Right. And it, it always depends on what, you know, what the goal is and where kind of he has a hole for dogs. But he said the first one has some benefits and the one that never comes to you has some benefits. And you just have to decide what project you want and which hole you need to fill and what dog you're going to take on. But yeah, he's always mentioned that method as well. And then. Like I said, the chubby ones around our place get kept a lot. So, yeah, yeah. I don't really think there's a right or a wrong way to do it. And I just feel like however you end up with the dog, it's because you were supposed to get that dog. This summer on June 17th through 21st, 2024, we're hosting She's a Hand Ranch Camp Summer Camp Edition. This camp will be an opportunity for young women 15 to 18 years old to come to Montana and learn hands-on cattle handling skills. We'll be accepting 14 applications. You can apply today at the form below or request more information by emailing info at cattlemenu.com. I think that's probably comforting to hear because I'm guessing there's some people listening who worried about picking up the wrong dog every dog has a place. And so I think just hearing you say that will ease some of their minds. Yeah. If, if a dog comes to you, however you get it, 
I feel like that dog came to teach you something. And so let's say you go, oh my God, this dog is such a challenge. I wish I didn't have this dog. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think the way to look at it is say, okay, this dog came to me. He's a challenge and I'm going to learn something from it. And if you look at it that way and you're open to the learning that the dog brings, I feel like it'll be a match and you'll learn that thing you needed to learn. And then you might not get another dog like that. Like you might be able to check that little lesson off the list and your next dog comes to you with yet a different thing to teach you. But I mean, that's just my personal opinion. If I watch people with their dogs, I would say I, a lot of times I do this for entertainment. I have observed what's going on. And I'm like, oh, I know what that dog's trying to teach that person. Hopefully they learn the lesson. I love that. Well, this has been really helpful and I think encouraging and I hope it gives some people some confidence to go and pick their next dog. Let's go into the fun rapid fire questions. You don't have to have rapid fire answers. So if it takes you a minute or if you want to expand on any of these, you're welcome to. The first one's pretty easy. What is your favorite cut of steak and how do you like it? Mm, that would be a T-bone medium. But I also could eat a steak raw out of the freezer. That's my second favorite way. No one has ever said that. You, don't <laughs> put, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't put any seasoning on it? Yep. Uh, I don't know how this happened, but I think my mom was cutting up steak when I was a kid. And I said, I want to buy it. I want to buy it. And she's like, no, you don't. And I'm like, no, I really do. And it was raw. And so I salted it and peppered it and ate it. And I'm like, oh, you don't even have to cook mine. I really like that. And I know it's kind of sketchy, creepy, whatever, but I really enjoyed the taste of it. So a lot of times I will defrost one to where it's not bloody, but it's not frozen and just salt and pepper it and eat it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Next time I'm going to have to try that and see. How <laughs> not bad. <I'll> keep <laughs> Okay, perfect. The next is, what is an ag industry topic that you think needs talked about more? Uh, this would probably be a big thing to cover. But I feel like as producers of livestock, both sheep and cattle, I feel like, so when you go to the store and you want to buy some bread, it is priced, and if you can afford it, you buy the bread. I feel like as a producer, we do all this work. We put all this time, effort, and money into producing our product. And then they tell us what they will give us for it. And I'm wishing that there was a way that we were more like the people that sell the bread. We say, no, these calves are worth X amount. If you want them, that is what's going to cost you. But it's not that way. I feel like we just, as you know, the workload for cattle in every type of weather is incredible it's hard it's challenging we love it and then we're not we're not really paid for it we get paid what they say they will pay us it's something i'm so passionate about and something we talk a lot about on the podcast actually is being able to control the controllables mm -hmm. and i think in agriculture one of our worst qualities is we go through the motions and we just do what we think is expected a lot of times without any more thought. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, one of the things we talk about in Cattle Menu is I think to be profitable on an operation nowadays, you have to be creative. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we discouraged creativity in agriculture. And we made it kind of, you know, a muscle type job where it was like the more work you could get done with your body, the more physical it was, the better. And I think we have to come back and add some creativity. And I think the only way we can control some of those prices is to be outside the box thinkers and play offense versus defense on the operation. Correct. Yeah, I don't know that I have a solution, but I do think there should be a way that producers could get together and say, this is what we have, this is the price. And then maybe we could be in control of that for once instead of, you know, we we put all the work in, we go to the sale barn, we get what we get. I just, I don't think there's another industry like that. (laughs) And it just amazes me that the more work you put in, it could be that you get paid less than anybody else in that chain of uh, production. Absolutely. Something to think about. And I think it's a conversation too, just to have around the house. Like, are we, are we maximizing our potential or are we doing what we think we should do or what is convenient? And one of the ways that, you know, we talk a lot about is like coal cows, coal cows come to town majority, right? September and October, a little into November, but majority of two, three months. And even just selling them a month earlier or holding them to a holiday can change the profit profitability of those pretty significantly. And I remember the first time I ever mentioned that, someone said, well, my cool cows don't affect my operation that much. And I said, well, do the math. They probably affect 10 or 15%. And that's where profitability is really found is what they consider the pennies versus the dollars. And there's just all those type of little, you know, kind of crossing our T's and dotting our I's. And I think there's a lot of opportunity, but I think that's a great topic. Yeah. And it would be a, you know, three week topic because there's so many variables and unanswered questions and, you know, things we're not in charge of. But if there was a way to do that, I would be on board helping that. (laughs) Absolutely. Me too. Okay. This one's fun. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Hmm. I got two. Um, One is from my dad who pretty much just, he, he was a good trainer, but he done it. He did it in such a way that it was a fairly good lesson to learn. So one day at the practice pen roping steers, I was missing and missing and missing And I rode over there expecting to get some really good advice on what to do differently. And I said, "Uh, I'm not doing very good. He goes, nope. When you get shit tired of missing, you'll go ahead and catch. (laughs) And I thought, what he's saying is, you'll figure it out and you'll find a way to change it. And I don't know why, but that's always stuck with me. And it's I've used it in every aspect. The second thing is that I learned this much, much later in life, but is the art of allowing. So, for instance, you allow people to be who they are. You allow the dog to be who it is. If your dog says, this is who I am, don't argue with the dog. Just let them be who they are. Maybe they're a weaker dog, whatever. Let your horse, your dog, your spouse, let let everything be as it is. Don't, don't wish it were different. Don't try to change it. Just let it be as it is. Because I just feel like 
wanting something to be what it's not is just a way to make yourself suffer because you're not in control of other things. So for instance, when we, we've calved here in March in Wyoming and I've always said, why, why do we calve in March? Mother nature is, you know, she's stronger than us. She's, she does what she does and we have no control over her. So instead of fighting with her, why don't we calve later? Um, and we have moved it back. This will be our first year to calve much later, but it's that thing. Why are we fighting with something that we're not going to win? So I guess I would say allowing things instead of forcing things. I've never had much luck forcing things to happen. Both of those are great. I like that allowing things versus forcing things. I'm going to write that down. Okay, last one. So this one requires a little out-of-the-box thinking for most of our guests. But if you weren't a rancher, you weren't uh, in kind of the agriculture, I mean, you can still be in agriculture space, but not doing what you're doing now. What is your non-career dream job? Oh, I would be a singer for sure. <laughs> oh, that's fun. I don't think anyone said that yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I sing all the time, never in front of people. And my dogs are probably like, oh, my God. But obviously, I was not gifted to do that. But yeah, if somebody said tomorrow, I will gift you a voice to sing, I would do it. I agree. I think that is just such a cool talent when someone can just grab a guitar at family Thanksgiving and just start playing. Yeah, absolutely. I also am writing a book. And so I think I would, I think I would be singing and writing books. Yeah. Wow. Well, you'll have to let us know when the book comes out and we'll be sure to put all of your information. I'm sure you're going to get some dog questions from the Kettleman U listeners. So we'll put all of your information in the show notes and is the best place to find you on your website? Yeah, which is Creekside Stock Dogs. There's a Facebook page, a TikTok page and a website as well. Okay, great. We will send people over there. And I really appreciate your time today and all of your great knowledge about dogs. Hey, thanks for having me. It was super fun. Of course. Thank you, ma'am. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Cattle Menu Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. We are thankful to have you in your community. Like always, remember, the grass is greener where you water it.